Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. My mother, you know, it's interesting because, and I think there's a lot of that in me. She always had this attitude that, you know, I can do this and I'm going to make it happen. And this nothing is impossible. She didn't shut herself off. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Before I get started, I want to thank all you like I always do. I can't believe how supportive you are. It's unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, I got a steamer trunk in the mail, FedExed. This thing weighed more than Rhode Island, okay? I open up the steamer trunk. There's milk cans like Houdini got out of. There's rocks with etchings on them. There's like T-shirts, hats. You guys are crazy wonderful, and I'm so appreciative, and I can't believe how supportive you've been. And I want to thank everyone at iTunes as well, who has just been amazing to the show. And I'm so grateful. We have some great shows coming up in the future that you're going to love, including Kevin Hart, which is a special presentation that we're going to have before his movie launches from the stadium in Philadelphia. All right. So now it's time to introduce my guest today. So get some popcorn. This is the part that you fast forward through and you hate, but I love, and I'm going to go for it. Mona Scott Young is a CEO and media mogul and a successful talent manager, television producer, publisher, TV host, CEO, and founder of multimedia entertainment company, Mona Me Entertainment, home to Grammy Award-winning artist Missy Elliott, publishing imprint Mona Me Books, and VH1's most popular docu-franchise, Love and Hip Hop. She has transformed the face of television, giving African-American musicians, actors, business owners, and athletes an alternative outlet. She's broke ground with record-breaking ratings from shows like Love and Hip Hop, Chrissy and Jim, and dozens more to come. She is the executive producer of Love and Hip Hop and the highly rated spinoff Love and Hip Hop Atlanta and Love and Hip Hop Hollywood. The latest addition to the successful franchise, Scott Young has also executive produced the related series Chrissy and Mr. Jones and K. Michelle, My Life, 
as well as numerous reunion shows and specials for VH1, where she also served as on-camera host and narrator. Scott was born in New York and was living on her own in New York City when she was 15. Finances were her biggest priority, which explained why she decided not to attend college. Scott did a normal 9 to 5 like most, but it was a temp job she took at Radio City Music Hall that would play a pivotal role in her entering the entertainment business. She signed on for a temp job during the holidays at Radio City Music Hall, and she interacted directly with entrepreneurs and different acts who were performing. Her first transition into management came with the Trackmasters. With her success with the Trackmasters, she built her own management company, Violator, with Chris Lighty. Violator was home to artists like Q-Tip, Foxy Brown, Missy Elliott, Ja Rule, Mob Deep, 50 Cent, Busta Rhyme, Mariah Carey, and Fantasia from American Idol. Mona was a mentor and employer of Yandy Smith, and then Young had been hired to personally manage Jim Jones. Mona was in the process of creating Mona Me Film Production Company, and Jim was approached by VH1 to do a reality show, but the series creator, Jim Ackerman, who I know very well, needed a new direction for the series, and since Jim wasn't interested, and through Yandy, he contacted Mona to develop love and hip-hop and history was in the making. Five years later, the series is still on the air and has spun off three franchises plus two other spinoffs. Amazing. Scott Young's previous accolades include being honored with awards from the National Association of Black Female Executives in Music Entertainment, ASCAP's Women Behind the Music Award, Marketer of the Year Award by Ad Age, and she was recognized by the National Congress and Convention of Haitian Americans for her philanthropic work. Essence Magazine also named her a 21st century renaissance sister scott young's business and philanthropic achievements have garnered recognition from a variety of organizations and publications she was recognized at 2015 and 16 as the real screen global 100 the hollywood reporters reality powerless varieties reality television impact report billboards tv's top music power players and multi-channel news named her vh1's reality superstar just incredible. Scott Young was also honored at the 2015 Toast to Urban Entertainment Executives event and was named one of the top 40 industry social media influencers by 2015 Sync Blog. Incredible, Mona. Additionally, Mona Me recently announced the pickup of two new series, Money, Power, Respect from WeTV and Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, the spinoff Stevie and Jocelyn. Take L.A. Scott Young's additional credits include consulting executive producer for VH1's Amber Rose Talk Show and executive producer for VH1's Hip Hop Honors and Love and Hip Hop After Party Live. In addition to cocaine, history between the lines. This is Hot 97, The Gossip Game, and The New Atlanta. When not in the office, Scott Young is enjoying time with her family and serving on the board of Haitian Roundtable, the RSQ Foundation, and the Grassroots Community Foundation. She currently lives in New York City with her husband, daughter, and son. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited, if she's still awake, <laughs> to welcome you, Mona Scott Young. <sighs> and the crowd cheers. Was that all off the top of your head? Mm -hmm. That's bizarre and bananas and awesome and all at the same time. Thank you. It channels through me. I don't know what happens. And it was so funny because listening to it, I was like, oh, God, this is embarrassing. And then I got sucked in. <laughs> <laughs> there was so much truth in all of that. Not because, yes, I am all those things, but because, yes, I am all those things. 
You are. That was pretty awesome. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. And I get a recording of this, right, so that I can just play that every morning. Yes, you That's can. how I want to start my friggin' day every morning. <laughs> Will you do that? Absolutely. Because I'm going to play some of your stuff for myself every morning, and then oh I'm going to cry afterwards and realize I don't have your life. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a whole lot over there. <laughs> I appreciate it. Been on my own since I was 15. Actually emancipated minor, figuring it out. Um, now, you were emancipated at 15. I don't know anybody who was emancipated at 15. Explain in your mind when the, the process started happening that, okay, I got to get out of here and I got to figure out a way to have my independence. Right. How do you start the process of that and what age do you start thinking about it? Well, actually what happened was we, you know, I was born and raised on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. My mom was a single mother and moved around to wherever she needed to to take care of us. And when I was about 8 years old, she moved to St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. And we were living in St. Croix and I don't know if you've ever been, but you could pretty much do everything there is to be done in St. Croix in the first week of being there. So I was bored out of my mind, knew that there was so much more out there for me. And I would come to New York and visit my older sister who lived, you know, here in New York and always wanted to go back. And my mom was like, no, you've got to stay here. And um, I got information about how, you know, as an emancipated minor, you couldn't be held, you know, to living with your parents and family. And one day I just packed my stuff up, headed to the airport I remember my mother coming to the airport. You can't go. What are you doing? And I had um, actually started looking into the process and had gotten the paperwork. And when the cops showed up, I was like, I'm declaring myself an emancipated minor. And they had to call a magistrate down and, you know, went through the whole process and was allowed to get on that plane at 15, which in retrospect was friggin' crazy. Like, you know, I mean, of course, they made contact with my sister and she confirmed that she would, you know, pick me up on the other side and I'd have a place to stay. But, you know, I think about my kids now. My son is 18 and I still consider him like a baby who can't find his way out of a paper bag. You know, but meanwhile. Well, you know why that is. Why? Because we think we're so much smarter than our kids. No, when we were kids, I'm not putting you in my age range because you're much younger than me. I'm going to fit my walker with tennis balls after this podcast. But when I was younger, basically you got up in the morning on a Saturday and you said, Ma, I'm going out to play with some friends. I'll be back for dinner. Right. And you're just gone. You're around town alone as an eight-year-old. And now you keep them so close to you. They're latchkey kids. They yeah. can't, you know. Take care of themselves. No, I, I absolutely agree. But when I think about some of the things that I was doing, especially after emancipating and coming to New York City and having to get up and go to school on my own and make sure that I got through high school, and I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? You know? You were thinking the right thing. You were thinking like one of the persons who has the five tools. Ah, there you go, those five tools. First of all, how do you get the money for the plane? Well, I, I've always worked. That's the thing, whether it was odd jobs, you know, and my mother uh, in St. Croix owned like one of those, they had the cruise ships that came in and she was always selling souvenirs and she had a restaurant and bar and she had tenants and we would do odd jobs around the house and making sure that, you know, um, things were handled with the tenants collecting the rent. So she would always, that was the one thing I credit my mother for at a very early age, always instilled in us business, right? You do this, you do a good job, you get compensated for it. So I was stashing away. And back then the ticket was like 200 bucks, 
you know? So I stashed away for an entire summer to get that ticket. You're on the aisle with your mom. Is this just you and your mom? And my sister and my little brother. And was your sister younger than you or older? My sister is a year older than me, but I was kind of the ringleader. You know, she's a totally different personality. I'm an Aquarius. She's a Libra. She's more about making sure everything's copacetic. Everybody's happy. I'm, you know, always shaking things up and trying to give my mother a heart attack. This is something that I don't know about because I grew up with a single mom, too. Uh, My dad passed away when I was four. I knew how my dad left the earth plane. Did you know anything about your dad or where he was or what happened? And did you ever meet your dad? I remember, I have one clear, vivid memory of my dad, right? And it's an interesting thing because I've always, I remember my dad coming over to the apartment where we lived and my mom, you know, I didn't quite understand the dynamic of who he was, right? Because it was one memory of him. And I remember him saying, eat all your food and I'll take you to get that bike that you want. It was a tricycle. And I remember, you know, This man saying this to me and apparently me eating all the food because next memory is me riding this tricycle and looking behind me and he and my mother were holding hands. And the next memory I have is me coming, being flown in from St. Croix, uh, from New York to St. Croix and my mother picking me up at the airport and it was the first flight I'd ever taken on my own because it was that whole tag that they put on you when you're, you know, minor traveling on your own. And at the counter, my mother started changing my clothes and putting on black tights and a black little tutu. And I'm like, why are you changing my clothes? And she was like, your father died. And at the time, there was my stepfather that was in and out of our lives. And this man that one time I remember getting the red tricycle and my mother saying, that's your father. And and I remember going like, oh, it's okay. Don't I have another one? And that was when, you know, I realized that my father, you know, who my biological father had passed away. And then going to the funeral, it's all kind of a blurry, you know, memory for me. But those are kind of the only two real recollections I have. <coughs> Sad. Uh, yeah, I mean, I always think about, you know how they say there's things that trigger in your head uh, moments in your life. I always wonder about that. Eat all your food and I'll get you a tricycle because food has always been something that I've had this love-hate relationship with, you know, and I, and I wonder if I ever like laid in an analyst couch, on an analyst couch, would they say, oh, there it is. Those are daddy issues, and they're directly linked to your overeating. You know? <laughs> hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Another thing I wanted to ask you that I didn't experience, I remember something in my life when my father died. I remember I... I heard like noises from the kitchen 
remember I was like maybe four or five, and I walked around the living room to a place where I could be in a doorway and kind of peek in and see what was happening. Mm-hmm. And my mom had her back to me, and it's one of those kitchens that have the sink, and there's the window that overlooks the backyard. And she's doing dishes, and you know when people cry, and you can see mm-hmm. from the back they're crying, their, their shoulders. shoulders go up and down. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing her crying, and I remember walking over to her and holding her leg and saying, everything's going to be okay. You talked about daddy issues and what drives mm-hmm. you as a person. I think that moment there, I became the everything's going to be okay guy. Right. And yeah. so in my Why are business, you making me emotional with that story? Wow. I'm you know? sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm crying a little bit too, so that's yeah. okay. We're all good. We, we, <laughs> we don't have any Kleenex here. That's the bad part. Right. I believe that's what forms and shapes us for who we are. Absolutely. And so for you, I believe that drove you into a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And if that tragedy didn't happen, mm-hmm. maybe you wouldn't be exactly mm-hmm. where you are today. And I certainly know mine wouldn't have because there are many instances later on that I pulled on that story. And mm-hmm. so but what I was about to say was she never really dated anybody or went out with anybody that I knew. But I think to myself, you know, you're beautiful. Your mom was probably gorgeous living in on, the, on an island mm-hmm. where tourists come in and out. Was it hard for you to, you know, was she, was she somebody who just kept to herself or did you see her trying to find the man mm-hmm. of her dreams? Because I asked that because... Your show is have a lot to do with love and conflict and dysfunctional relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you know what? Years later, my mother did have another relationship. That's my brother. Was nine years younger than I am, and he was born. She got married to a much younger, uh, you know, to a younger man. Oh, that's interesting. Now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, I got married to a younger man. What's the correlation there? But um, no, my mother. You know, it's interesting because. And I think there's a lot of that in me. As much as I watch this woman, you know, do whatever she had to do for her kids, and she always had this attitude that, you know, I can do this and I'm going to make it happen, and this nothing is impossible, she didn't shut herself off from love, and she didn't shut herself off from, you know, wanting to be in a relationship and finding someone. Unfortunately, they were never successful, you know, and, and even my my younger brother's father was like a friggin' nightmare, you know, I had some horrific memories growing up, and he he passed away um, and actually ended up in jail for trying to kill us all in the house. You know, he would get drunk and take the bottles and turn them into Molotov cocktails, you know, stuffing the rags in them and throw them at the house. So here my sister and I, you know, barely, however old we were, like putting out, you know, these small fires that would spark around our house. It was... It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I mean, it certainly shaped who I was being able to um, live through all of those experiences and persevere and see my mother pick herself up time and time again. But I think to some extent it desensitized me a little bit because my norm was warped. You know, the things that I had come to just accept as part of my life were just not the normal things that people you know, grow up experiencing. So when you talk about like what would make you think at 15 that you could become an emancipated minor, by the time I turned 15, I felt like I had lived a lifetime. You, you know? had. You had. Yeah. So, but your mom kept going back to this guy who was throwing Molotov cocktails mm. into the house. That was actually the last straw. Oh, God. He would, he would do other things. I mean, he was abusive to her, you know, not, nec- not to us as much. But... um. 
I, re- I remember so many instances of my mother kind of like, whatever you're doing, do to me, do not mess with my kids. Whether it was him ripping the antenna down, you know, because back then living on the islands, you needed an antenna to actually transmit English television. So he'd rip the antenna off the top of the house so we couldn't, you know, watch TV or just like me, great when he was sober and like everyone just crazy and mean when he was drunk. But she never allowed it, although it was impacting us, of course, seeing this stuff happen with her. Did you ever do a lot of research on your world of the adult child of alcoholic parents, or you've never really explored it? I have this really bizarre tendency to compartmentalize. I put things in a box, like, we're going to put this in a box, we're going to bury it, we're not even going to, you know. Um, Am I well-read on all of those subjects and I understand how they can subliminally, subconsciously affect you, shape you, impact you, and manifest themselves in, you know, the craziest of ways when you're not paying attention? Sure. Very aware of that. But no, I've never stopped to really think about um, what that meant for me growing up and how that, you know, probably... I think I've worked against it, but I've never really analyzed it. You know, there's some kids that grow up and their parents never tell each other that they love each other. They never hold hands. There's no affection. And there's certain children that carry that on to Mm -hmm. the next generation. Mm -hmm. And there's certain children that make it a point that they become just the opposite of what they saw. Mm -hmm. Where do you fit in in that? Complete opposite. Complete opposite. And and again, that's why I said I'm aware of it, so I'm constantly battling, you know, against it. I, you know, think about my relationships. That was a conscious decision to, you know, get into a relationship that was going to, you know, be lasting and to work at it every single day. I mean, there were tons of times where it would have been easier to say, oh, to hell with this. This is too much work. But because I didn't want my kids to be the product of a broken home, we put in the work to, you know make the, the the marriage work. And listen, it's not this utopian, perfect, you know, home. And we are conscious of the things, you know, both Sean and I, of the things that we experienced growing up, not wanting our kids to, you know, be subject to those same things or, and, and putting in the work and taking the time to have the conversations that were never had with us and to let, to, to make sure that they're witnessing something different, even in our home. We're naturally demonstrative, very affectionate. Our daughter is 13. She's constantly going, yeah, that's disgusting. I know how I was made and I don't want to witness it. You know, (laughs) she's smarter than I ever could dream of being funny, you know, great sense of humor. So awesome. Awesome. Well, you just, you have such an amazing, amazing energy. No, thank Uh, you. I want to ask you another question about family. I Mm -hmm. hope you don't mind. I have two boys, 11 Mm -hmm. and 12, and you don't know what's going to happen. You never Mm -hmm. know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know that LeBron James' kids are going to play basketball. Right. Mm -hmm. But in my world, I don't know. And just one day, they just start doing something Mm -hmm. and liking something. You're like, where did that come from? That wasn't from me. And how You're talking about my daughter with the rock music? Yes. (laughs) We have no idea where that came from. It's so wild. So you know I do the research. Yes, you do do your homework. I'm impressed. At first I thought, oh, she's doing this because she, I guess to some extent, her brother, first child, really good at anything he sets his mind to, handsome kid, great dancer. And my daughter, you know, 
very self-assured and great sense of who she is, but very different from her brother. And I, and I thought at first it was just a means of her kind of having her own lane, you know, because he's into, of course, R&B and hip-hop music, pop music, and it's what he grew up listening to and what he grew up around. Um, but she really has a love for it. And, she's, and I'm watching her apply herself in a way that just makes me proud because I think I never had those natural kind of abilities for music and, you know, dance I do I, that I'm very good at. I'll take all the credit for that. But like playing instruments or holding a note, people say to me all the time, you know, I know you can sing. I'm like, trust me, I cannot hold a note to save my life. So I'm so impressed by people who have that natural ability, but I'm even more impressed that by people who work hard and develop. A talent, right? And so for my daughter to hear her, um, you know, working on the piano or the guitar and her vocals and learning the music and the songs, like to me, that says so much about who she's going to be. And that's, you know, makes me so proud. But I have no idea where that sensibility came from. Because when I tell you, my husband and I are like, okay, let's go to the show. <laughs> you know, like, no a context whatsoever. I don't know any of the songs she sings, don't know any of the music that she's excited about. That's fantastic. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And I want to ask you one more emotional question. I hope oh, you don't geez. mind. No, not at all. I've known a lot of artists who have mm -hmm. been in homes where a lot of heavy shit's happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you talked about with the fire and putting mm -hmm. out, I mean, doesn't get any worse than that. And you saw all this conflict in your life involving love. This is so incredible to me how it ties together because... Like you said something so fantastic. You said when it was good, it was great, mm -hmm. loving, wonderful. And when it was bad, it was bad. And every show that I've seen of yours, and I've been uh, watching so much stuff, it's mm -hmm. crazy. I've been absorbing myself <laughs> and everything. The shows are essentially, in my mind, mm -hmm. this is the formula for your shows. And you tell me if I'm high. Okay. In the African-American world, the drive for... Fame, success, recognition, respect, and power. The drive for love and happiness through reciprocal love. Mm -hmm. Not only do you love somebody with all your heart, but the hope that they love you mm -hmm. back. And thirdly, 
the conflict when you feel another person has done something to disrespect you, to dishonor you, to disarm you, to not love you as much as you deserve to be loved, and the consequences of that. To me, that's the formula of your success in television. And to me, it was born out of the formula of your early life. Well, you know, it's a little bit of that, but I'll make one correction. It's not necessarily the African-American relationship story, right? It's very specifically the hip-hop culture and the music-based hip-hop culture relationship story. Um, it was a little bit, maybe you're right, based on what I experienced growing up, but it was more about what I saw and experienced being a manager for 20-plus years, right? I was out there on the road with these guys. I represented, the, you know, a ton of them at the height of their careers and saw what happened to those relationships that never fully matured, right? I know some of my old clients who were dating their girlfriends for 15 years and never put a ring on it, never, you know, and then those relationships would come to an end and those women would have, they would have given the best years of their lives and, you know, had nothing, have nothing to show for it in a sense. And dealing with um, all of the, the things that come with everything that you give up in pursuit of love and career and, you know, that struggle, uh, what it represents for you internally, but how it impacts the relationship that you in, you're in. That's what Love & Hip Hop specifically was about. It was one, um, pulling the curtain back on the lives that these, you know, artists led and whether they be male or female, but also looking at how those relationship dynamics existed in this world that had a different set of rules. You know, there were scenes in the early episodes where you heard Chrissy talk about like, I know what it is when my man is on the road, as long as he doesn't bring it to my doorstep, I'm okay with that. Right. And this was never about passing judgment or looking at it and saying, oh, th the way they're living their lives or having mm. these relationships, it's wrong. So you think that's representative of every woman who goes out with a hip hop person is like, I'm just going to look the other way? No, no, no. Not every woman. I would never generalize in that way. Right. And I think that's been a big part of the backlash that the show has experienced. People have tried to paint this as, you know, the definitive picture of all African-American relationships. No, it's not that at all. I'm living proof that that's not the norm. And, you know, because my relationship is very different. This is, again, not only this specific slice of the, you know, entertainment world, this hip hop culture, but also these people and their experiences specifically, right? And we've tried to tell different stories. You look at Remy and Papoose, very, very different from any of the relationships that, you know, any of my cast members in Atlanta have had. So it's really more about this culture, everything that comes with it, the fame, the, you know, the adoration, the fans. How do you navigate that world and try to maintain um, a monogamous relationship? And what do you have to give up in order to have that life? And I'm sure it's no different in rock and roll and in any other genre of music. Hip hop was just where I came from all of those years. So when you were managing, one of the toughest parts for me throughout my management career and especially early on in the early days is you'd be hanging out with a client 20 years ago or whatever it is 
you'd be at a party and you know they had a girlfriend for mm-hmm. many years and they'd sit down next to you and they'd mm-hmm. say, hey, Barry, I went on the road last night. I was in Chicago, this girl. I mean, she had my ankles in two different zip codes. It was unbelievable, Barry. It was incredible. And then the girlfriend will sit down next to me and hug me. Mm-hmm. And, hey, Barry, how you doing? Isn't he the best? Isn't he the best? He is the best, isn't he? Look, I love that guy. Mm-hmm. He's the best. And you're just sitting there like you've been involved in the, a car accident and you're in the passenger seat. Yeah. And I, that always disturbed me because I had to take those things to the grave. Mm-hmm. And I still have to take them to the mm-hmm. grave long ago from clients I work with long that I don't even work with anymore. How did you handle those situations? Because I know they happen. Mm-hmm. How did you handle them? I think that ability that I talked about earlier to compartmentalize became a coping device for me, both in my personal life and in business. I have had my closest best friends work for me for like the past 20 years and my ability to separate the two. I can, you know, very clearly delineate between my relationship because a lot of times your clients become your friends, right? And sometimes you have to be the person keeping it 100 and pulling their coat. I'm never going to betray a trust. I'm never going to compromise what the, the way I'm supposed to operate, right? As the manager and the trusted source keeper of the information. But that didn't mean that when he and I weren't alone in having a real conversation that I didn't call him out for being a piece of crap about it, right? But I'm never going to let commingle the two where I'm now compromising who I am supposed to represent as their manager because I am personally involved and emotionally, you know, involved in their personal life. Um, And I don't know. I don't know if it served me well. I don't know if it's worked against me. I remember Jim Jones saying to me once, like, you're a robot. You know, and I'm like, I'm not a robot. I just have a clear ability to separate things. So when I can sit here with you and have this conversation, it is not because I don't care. It's because my feelings have no place in this conversation, you know, and it's not an easy thing to do, but I don't know. Where do your feelings have a place in a conversation? In a personal conversation, a conversation when I think that, you know, someone is, um, Doing something that is hurtful, yes, I will, you know, I think that's where, but if I am having a business conversation with someone and um, what I have to say doesn't further the business agenda, I'm happy to have a personal conversation with them where we can talk about it, but I, I, I don't commingle the two. It's amazing. You said something that really kind of affected me that was so profound, that a woman gives the best years of her life to these people and she has nothing to show for it. And it was really profound uh, analysis of how a woman feels about a relationship. And then I think to myself, why doesn't the guy ever say, I gave the best 15 years of my life and I have nothing to show for it. How come the guy never says that? I think we're wired very differently, right? I think we want different things out of relationships. I mean, I don't, again, hate generalizations and lumping people into buckets. But um, I think if we look at the majority of relationships, you know, that don't work out, um, I think we're probably fine. And again, I don't know what the statistics are, but a lot of it is because the woman wanted more out of the relationship. And and especially when you look at something that ran for 15 years, usually it's the guy turning around and saying she's, you know, 
not what I have in mind anymore, too old, whatever the case is, and turning to someone else for the things that they feel they're no longer getting in the relationship, but not willing to put the work in to figure out how to resuscitate or keep alive. You know, that's, uh, you know, another thing as well. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.